Hello, everyone. This is Tim Dodd. Welcome to the Believer's Faith Challenge podcast. Thankful to give witness to tens of thousands, yes, and to the millions that believe it and believes it. I believe that God's going to let me live to pack it until all around the world it's been circulated. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast today. This is the Believer's Faith Challenge podcast where we report on the works of God all over the world as relates to the end-time word. Today we are continuing playing the audio portion of A True Witness, the testimony of Ed Biskell. And as we hear this testimony, we are also hearing from the founder of the Believer's Faith Challenge Report on which this podcast is based. So now we present to you a true witness, the testimony of Ed Biskell, Episode 2, Crossing Paths with a Prophet. One day my father, he was about 18 at the time, and he was plowing a field uh, in Saskatchewan. He was plowing behind the horses in the furrow. He was walking in the fresh furrow. And he doesn't know what happened, but it was, he said it was like a wind. I would say like a force, like I experienced with in Brother Branham's ministry. But this force struck him and he fell to his knees in the fresh furrow, and he threw up his hands to God, and he prayed, and he cried out. He said, oh God, if there is a God, now he's an older boy in the church, but he cried out, oh God, if there is a God, if you ever show me how I can be free from my guilt, my sin, I'll accept you that very day. My father farmed for a short time near his father's farm and it wasn't working out. He didn't feel cut out to farm. So they moved, he and his young wife and young family, I was only about two years old, and they moved up to a small village, only about 150 people, I think, a village called White Fox, Saskatchewan. and. Uh, it was there, I'll just make this a little more brief, but it was there that my father encountered a family with two daughters, with two girls. He had seen these girls walk across the street, a little gravel street in the town, and he saw in their faces they looked just like angels. He thought, oh my, if I could only have what they have. So there was a craving in his heart for reality, for deliverance from sin and unbelief and so on. And uh, he wanted something more than religion, of course. A lady in the town heard that he could do some carpenter work. So she would needed some shelving or cupboards in her kitchen and had him come over and look at what she wanted done. 
when he was in the house, he noticed there's the two girls. And as he was getting ready to go, the lady asked him if he had ever been saved. And he said, well, I don't know what that means. She said, that means you can be free from your sin. Oh, he said, if I could only be free from my sin. She said, well, we are having meetings in a home on Sunday, if you'd care to come. And she, and he said, I had promised God years ago, if I ever could be free from my guilt, I would accept it that very day. And as I understand the account, she just, they knelt at two chairs in that kitchen of that home where those two girls were. And my father was, he got up a totally transformed person. He lived for Christ all of his life. And he had, matter of fact, it was then my mother passed away suddenly when I was only six and a half years old. I was in grade two at school and a very godly man. I think he was probably an old farmer, but he was a very godly man. And I was called out of the room and my sister was standing with him. And he said that uh, Jesus had taken my mother to heaven. And this was, this was the beginning and the end of many things. It was, it's a very, very difficult and very sad story. My sister and I, we went through from one housekeeper to another to another, about four different housekeepers, and we had time we were alone, and my father was working in an alfalfa plant, cleaning uh, the bags and so on, and we would try to make something to eat and go up there. And then my father heard of a lot of work that was taking place in Dawson Creek and the building of the Alaskan Highway. Just prior to that, my father had remarried a very fine Christian woman, but she was completely opposite of what my mother. My mother was a very, uh, a very loving mother, um, and uh, not that this one wasn't, but we weren't her children and uh, she was very quiet. My mother was outgoing and very, you know, uh, just very outgoing. And this woman was, Anna Leland was her name, and she was just a very quiet woman. So anyhow, our life was completely rearranged. And my father went over about a thousand miles west to Dawson Creek and up the Alaskan Highway. He was, there were camps built all over the highway. And you have to understand that the Alaskan Highway was a war project. The Japanese were invading up the Aleutian Islands, had already taken over two of the islands. And there's even, I understand there's documentaries where the Japanese had taken Attu, A-T-T-U, Attu Island. And that was the thrust. If they took Alaska, and then Northern Canada was really not defended. And then if they got down to the 48 states, 
it would, it would uh, risk. Japan was fighting and they had seized much of Asia and now into China as well. Singapore and Hong Kong, and they'd taken all of that. And now if they took, they were a powerful force. And uh, if they came down to the 48 states of mainland uh, America, so Canada and the United States joined together and the U U.S. built the highway and Canada agreed to maintain it forever. And then there would be a land route to get heavy equipment, tanks and war equipment into Alaska to defend it. That's the purpose of the Alaskan Highway. And there were tens of thousands of people and contractors and civilians that were involved in that. And so my father moved up there and he was at mile 458 he wrote back and communicated with my stepmother to pack everything up and to come out. And we arrived in Dawson Creek at the end of May. Uh, I won't say perhaps the 1st of May because my sister, whose birthday is May the 6th, she had her birthday on the train coming from Edmonton to into Dawson Creek. And while we were there, uh, this has all happened in, you know, after my mother passed away, everything is just in a turmoil. Everything fell apart. And then I found myself, I was sent out to a farm 45 miles out of town across the mighty Peace River uh, with a tugboat and a little ferry and to people that I didn't know. And my, the last string I had on earth was my sister and she was, she was taken to a place uh, and because the pastor's wife had been arranged to find a place for the two children and my mother already had work up the Alaskan Highway. So I didn't have a mother, I didn't have a stepmother, I didn't have a sister and one is sent one place, one is sent another place and I was shifted, I never had a home all my all my youth and growing up years. I never had my own room, never had my own bed. And I moved 17 times uh, from then until the time I was 15. So it was a, it's a, a difficult time of, of my life. But I've been asked, what prepared you for the mission work and for this gospel? It was those years. I learned the, what the wilderness was. Little did I realize that years later I would have God's prophet up there and he loved that area and it was wilderness. And that's all I knew really. So uh, my father then in 1949 he felt to move to southern British Columbia. And on the way down, he would stop because he, he had such an experience with God and was interested in anything that God was doing. In fact, is 
he stopped in the meetings and he had heard that William Branham was going to be in Vernon, British Columbia. And that is where my contact began with him. Uh, in fact, is I have a letter. I should perhaps just read this letter. Uh, just a portion of this is my father's account of the meetings in Vernon. We found this, I think, after my father passed away in his things. And he's writing a minister. And he's writing about the news of our beloved brother Branham passing away. He said, came as a, with a shocking surprise to me. The loss of him cannot be estimated in words. Now he is resting in peace, but his work is going on and his memory is cherished in the hearts of thousands in the world. But he was writing about the meeting in Vernon, British Columbia. That was my first time. Finally, he said, Brother Branham looked at a poorly clad mother with a crippled child in her arms. He asked that the way be made for this poor mother to come forward. Never had I ever seen such a bundle of twisted bones. Thought this was a totally impossible case. Brother Branham took the child in his arms and lifted it up for the people to see it. There were tears and moans and sobs heard all around the place. Then he said, people, do you see how the demons have twisted the whole body of this child and are holding it bound? I will not let this child go until all these demons are cast out and the child is perfectly whole. With great authority, he commanded the demons to come, to come out, of, out in Jesus' name. After several commands, the demons came out and before the eyes of that great crowd, the bones were made straight his arms, legs, neck, and back all became straight, and the child lifted himself up with a smile on its face. You should have heard the, uh, the arena or the arena ring with the praises of thousands as they saw the mighty miracles of God done in the name of Jesus Christ. Praise God forever. Now that's my father's unsolicited, but he did not know what was happening to me. I was just with a series of young fellows. That's where I first met Billy Paul, in fact. And we were in our teens. And uh, I, was, I was caught by this that Brother Branham was a man that had talked to an angel, and an angel had come to him and told him he would take a ministry of healing. Now, I was familiar with Sunday school, with church. I knew the Bible spoke of angels. I had never, ever laid eyes on a person who had talked to God in that way. 
talked to an angel of God. And so I was anxious to see him come out. And he came out, said, good evening, people. Good evening, friends. And he began to speak. And after two or three days, I felt, I've got to get down where I can see this. I'm, I'm, I had no interest in being up in the, high in the bleachers anymore. I didn't have any more interest in just being with the fellows. And I got a seat. I don't know how to this day. I got a seat right on the aisle, one chair, just close two or three rows from the front. And in that service, I can't tell you what was spoken. I can't tell you of anyone else. But there was a girl, and I would say the girl was probably around 10 to 12 years old. She had ringlets down to her shoulders and uh, kind of a full-faced girl, but her eyes were just white balls. And I noticed right up, I was that close to the platform. I, I just right in the corner of the eye, I see just a little uh, part, a little part of the ball the ball of the eye, the edge of the eye. And the other eye, I could see nothing, just white. And I was, as far as I was concerned, and, and she was totally blind. Brother Branham laid his hands on her and he prayed a prayer. And I thought, in my young heart, I thought, well, I've heard about, you know, these things. Now, now here's something I can actually see. I can see this, and I was anxious to see someone healed because I had had so many experiences in churches and so on where people were prayed for for internal sicknesses and you're healed, but now it was something I could see visibly. And uh, Brother Branham prayed the second time, and. She was the same, and he prayed the third time, fourth time, fifth time, and he'd keep looking at her, and she was the same. Brother Branham prayed six times, and he did something I have never, and prayed a prayer I've never heard before. And he, he took and put his arms around her like that, and just kind of held her to his bosom. And he said, Satan, an angel from God had delivered this gift to me and told me that nothing would stand before my prayers, not even cancer. If I could get the people to believe, he said, the people are here and they believe and I charge you in the name of the living God to loose her and let her go. And that time he did not look at her anymore. He just turned her, took her by the shoulders and turned her to the audience. And I was just two, three rows away. I, I think I was in the third row. And I looked up and her eyes were as straight as mine. And then he lifted her up like this and the cries of the people. I didn't know that my mother and dad or my stepmother and, and dad were in the, where they were in the building. But that was my experience. This was my father's experience. And, uh, 
And I, I could even see the tears form in her eyes as she looked at the bright lights. She wasn't accustomed to the bright lights, and she's looking at the bright lights, and, and Annie put her down, and, and that anchored in my heart at 14 years old. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Remember, friends, the bridegroom will not come until the bride has made herself ready. She must be both called and fully dressed by the Word of God. This is the Believer's Faith Challenge Report podcast. You can sign up for our email newsletter at BibleWay.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page where it says Newsletter. Fill in your name and email address and click Sign Up. In this email report, you will receive reports of the works of God in China, in Africa, in South America, in India, Europe, all over the world. We also publish a full-color paper newsletter two times a year, complete with photographs, reports, and testimonies from all over the world. The newsletter is free. Just request it, and we would be happy to mail a copy to you. You can contact us by email at info at bible-believers.org. That's info at bible-believers.org. Or you can write to us at Bible Believers, P.O. Box 128, Blaine, Washington, 98231. That's Bible Believers, P.O. Box 128, Blaine, Washington, 98231. This is Mark Ajo. Thank you for being with us today. And be sure to join us for the next Believers Faith Challenge Report podcast. Thank you.